Welcome to the God of My Closet podcast, where we explore life and light of the love who embraces all of our skeletons. I'm your host, Ben DeLong, author of There's a God in My Closet. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I am really happy and excited about this podcast episode. Um, I got to interview my favorite author, Brian McLaren. Um, he, his writing started to, um, were coming out a lot when I was in college and in seminary, and they had a huge impact on me. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that um, in the interview. I'm so delighted to have him on the podcast. Um, just a couple announcements. Um, that I've mentioned before, uh, my book is still on sale on Amazon for $2.99 um, for the Kindle version. The, there's a God in my closet, Encountering the Love Who Embraces Our Skeletons. Um, so if you like the Kindle version, it's there. Um, the hard copy is still on sale on my website for $9.99. Um, so if you prefer a hard copy, you can go to bdelong.com. B-D-E-L-O-N-G.com. Well, that's about it. Thank you guys for listening. And without further ado, here is Brian McLaren. Well, thank you everybody for joining me today. I am so uh, happy and excited to have Brian McLaren on the podcast. Um, Brian is, I would say he's probably my favorite author. Um, definitely the author I've, I've read the most books on, um, or books that he's written. Um, he is an author, a speaker, speaker and activist. And overall, he's written or co-written over 20 books, um, including some of the ones that really hit me the most was Everything Must Change, The Secret Message of Jesus, and of course, um, The Incredible New Kind of Christian Trilogy. Thanks so much, Brian, for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. And it really means a lot to me that my books have been meaningful to you. And uh, I couldn't be happier, especially that Everything Must Change was one of your favorites. So it's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, 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 they really did. Um, looking back, I can see that um, I actually, when I went to seminary, um, I decided to do my program in intercultural studies. And, and a big part of that was to study more deeper in the postmodernism that you had written a lot about. So that oh, was great. Yeah, it was a big part of that. Um, so I figured, you know, like, like I usually do, just if we could just start, you want to tell a little bit about yourself just for people that may not be familiar with you? Sure. Um, well, I uh, was born in upstate New York, way out in the country, and uh, from a very young age, that's given me a deep love for nature. Uh, we had a mm. cow pasture across the street and a little creek full of fossils and salamanders and crayfish and frogs right next to the house. And so all my life, I've loved nature and I love the outdoors. Uh, I, uh, we then uh, moved around to Illinois, another place in New York. And, but then I grew up most of my childhood in Maryland. I went through school there, went to the mm. University of Maryland, studied English, uh, did a master's degree in English. While I was doing, uh, finishing up that master's degree, uh, my wife and I started a little dinner group uh, in our home. And uh, we would just invite people over for homemade bread and soup. Mm. And then that grew into a little fellowship that became a church. I ended up leaving. I became a college English teacher. I left teaching and I was the pastor of that church for 24 years. Hmm. Uh, and uh, let's see how many years ago it is now. 14 years ago, uh, I left 
the pastorate. Uh, I'd started writing books. And so for these last 14 years, I've been a writer and a speaker, and it's given me the freedom to be involved in a lot of activist work that means a lot to me. So mm. uh, that's maybe a good summary. Other, a couple other things about me. I, uh, my wife's name is Grace. We have four children in their 30s and five grandchildren. Mm. And uh, I'm a music lover, play guitar. I was a singer-songwriter back in the day. I still write some music. Love music and love the outdoors and love good literature. Nice. Very cool. Well, um, one thing I wanted to, to talk about a little bit, I actually listened to um, your interview with Ian Cron a while back. And, um, and you guys talked a lot about this concept of um, internal friendship or, or being a friend to yourself. Yes. And, um, and that, that's been, um, I also found out through that, that, that you're an Enneagram four and that's the type that I am. And so I've, I've, that's been a big part for me as well. And I've actually been, um, I've written a book, it's being edited right now, but it's a novel about, um, healing with your inner child. And so mm -hmm. that internal friendship is definitely a big part of that. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like what, um, what that means to you, that internal friendship and what, um, what it's taken for you to get there. Yeah. Well, so th thanks for, uh, that, that's a, a great question. I'm going to guess that some folks are familiar with the Enneagram and a lot aren't. And so I yeah. don't want to go too deep into that language, except to say that different ones of us have different ways that we hate ourselves. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. Um, some of us hate ourselves whenever we're not in charge. Mm. And uh, we hate it when somebody has power over us and we, we push ourselves to always, you know, get to number one. Yeah. Um, others of us, that never bothers us. And, and we hate ourselves when we always are nice to other people and they don't appreciate it. Mm. And we think if I just could serve them more, um, then they would appreciate me, you know, and, and something in us is never satisfied with ourselves until we can finally convince other people that they, that we're really wonderful. Yeah. Um, and others of us, we hold up different visions of success. And if mm -hmm. we don't match up to some vision of success, uh, if we don't have the respect and admiration of a certain number or kind of person. Anyhow, we all have different ways of doing this. Some of yeah. us, if we just, if anybody knows more than we do, it really bothers us. And, and I think we all, even though we do it in different ways, we have this in common that in our quiet moments, sometimes we we punish ourselves. I, mm. I didn't do that right. I didn't say the right thing. I didn't make everybody happy. I didn't make everybody like me. Yeah. And, and if you think of it this way, it's not somebody else who's hating me. It's part of me that's hating the rest of me mm. <laughs> or yeah. part of me that's hating part of me. Yeah. And in that way, so much of our lives gets controlled by this part of us that we are often not even aware of. So I'd say a first step that many of us need to take is to realize that often our greatest enemy is not somebody or something. Mm. It's actually an assumption or a script or a, a lie or a condemnation that we are habitually repeating to ourselves. Mm. And I, I think there's something that comes to us that, that, gives us permission to stop being a slave and stop being afraid and stop submitting. And here's what makes it really hard for religious people. 
very often that voice of self-hatred we equate with a voice of God. Yeah. Um, yep. You know, we can say, and especially if we're made to feel guilty about sex, you know, whether we're mm. gay, straight or whatever, yeah. we, we, you know, the fact that we're sexuals, we think, Oh God must hate me. And then mm. we beat ourselves up. Uh, and, and so I think there's a theological dimension to us, to this, that, makes us start with saying, actually, God is love. <laughs> and mm. and uh, probably a lot of people know that in the Bible, the word the Satan actually means the accuser. Yeah. And that accusatory voice, we shouldn't confuse with God. We have it about 180 degrees wrong. Yeah. Um, and so I'd say there's a theolog theological dimension to it. And then there's a personal dimension that involves us waking up to the ways that we hate ourselves. And and, uh, and, and then I think there's a positive side of it that is what you brought up, Ben, and that is, well, then how do we learn how to befriend ourselves? And, yeah. and there's so many dimensions to that, but I'll just maybe mention two. One would be, um, I think we all need to find out what brings us joy, mm. what recharges us. For some of us, it's being alone. For some of it's being outdoors. For some of us, it's uh, great art for some of us. It's laughter and a party. Find mm. out what it is that recharges us and make sure that we organize our lives to get those things whenever we can yeah. to the best degree that we can. Uh, and then maybe the other is when those voices inside of us start condemning us for us to give ourselves permission to say, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you know, I, I want to be a friend to myself. I don't want to be an enemy to myself. And of course, there's much more we could say, but that, that maybe is a start. Yeah. Well, and I wanted to ask too about, um, and this is very personal for me, but I'm sure it affects a lot of other people too, is just wrestling with our emotional lives and, and how loud our emotions get sometimes. And and um, like, like you said, just, just, I mean, because I know for me, a lot of times it, it feels so wrong to tell my, to deny my emotions and, mm. and to say like, no, I, I am good. Like that almost feels wrong because I've told myself I'm bad all my life. And yes, but just, yes. just to be able to say, like you said, like, shut up or I like for a while, I just had to like tell myself. I just had to tell myself over and over again that that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, that part of ourself only responds to strong language, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and in a sense, we're not uh, we're not saying we have to deny our emotions, but I think what we have to say is we're denying any one emotion or one oh, yeah. thread of emotion to control us, mm. and that's what seems to happen. It's like we give this magic key to some part of us the part of us that wants to condemn ourselves or the part of us that wants to unfavorably compare ourselves. Of course, some people have a problem that they're constantly fa favorably comparing themselves. I'm smarter than him. Right. I'm better looking than her. I'm this and that. And, you know, but this is part of what I think it means to be an emotionally mature human being, uh, to have what uh, the New Testament calls a sound mind. <laughs> mm, yeah. um, it's a mind that isn't at the mercy of any one out of control emotion or fear or drive yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And of course, saying that doesn't make it so, right? We can even know that and it's still not easy. Yeah. And that's where good therapy, good spiritual practices, good friends who can talk sense into us, mm. uh, all of these things uh, are, are part of our ways of learning. Uh, I'll use the word self-mastery 
you know, knowing that that word could be misunderstood, but maybe we could call it uh, self-development, um, yeah. you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, any of us who've struggled with depression mm-hmm. or, or any other thing that, you know, eventually can be really self-destructive, I think we, we come to realize that emotions are a gift, yeah. but, um, but if we give them too much power, what feels like a gift today can really feel like a curse tomorrow. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank, yeah, thanks for kind of going into that. And now I um, kind of want to get into the, the, um, a lot of what you write about in your books, especially a lot of the books that, that I've been able to read. And um, I know when, when I first started reading your material, um, the, the thing, and, and you weren't the, the only one that was writing about this, but, but the thing that just was really, people were really awakening to was this whole concept of the kingdom of God. Yes. And, and I remember, um, I think it's in, and you've probably, I think you've written this in several places, but I, I remember it. Um, I think especially in your trilogy of just talking about, you know, well, we think the gospel, you know, is one thing and it's, you know, about doing what's right and doing, doing all the religious stuff so we can get to get heaven when you die. And then just this, this simple question that like has blown people away, even though it's just so simple of, well, maybe we should see what Jesus said the gospel is. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Maybe I can tell the story about how that actually happened for me because all of this really grew from one lunch conversation. Um, This is before I'd written any books. And so I was very impressed with authors. Now that I've written books, I know authors are just normal schmucks, but, (laughs) um, uh, but there was this kind of famous Christian author uh, who was coming to the DC area where I lived. And so I called the secretary and managed to set up a lunch appointment. I, we met at this Chinese restaurant near where mm. he was staying. And uh, we're sitting in the restaurant and I'm feeling nervous because I was so much in awe of him. And um, he makes the statement, as I remember distinctly, I was eating hot and sour soup at this Chinese <laughs> restaurant. Our, it was our first course, you know. And, yeah. and he said, he says, well, Brian, most evangelicals don't have the foggiest notion what the gospel really is. Mm. And I thought, what kind of a thing is that to say? <laughs> and so I just kept looking in my soup because I was an evangelical and I knew what the gospel was. That's what we evangelicals are all about. Yeah. And so then when he saw me being quiet, he said, so how would you define the gospel, Brian? I said, well, it's about, it's the good news of accepting Christ as your savior and, uh, it's the good news of justification by grace through faith. And I said a few things like that. He says, that's what most evangelicals say. <laughs> <laughs> so then I said, well, what would you say the gospel is? And then, you know, he would, almost a little smugly says, well, shouldn't we let Jesus define the gospel? <laughs> yeah. And, and I thought to myself, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right, and then he yeah. said, he said, for Jesus, the gospel is the kingdom of God is at hand. Mm. And, he, as soon as he said that, I had this moment of realization. I had no idea what that phrase meant. Mm. Um, I, as soon as I heard kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, I thought, go to heaven when you die. Right. But I realized, yeah. no, that isn't what Jesus was talking about. And so that I remember I went home, literally, I downloaded, you know, I downloaded Matthew, Mark, Luke and John into one dot into one uh, document. And I mm. just started reading, looking for the phrase, doing a search on the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom or kingdom of heaven. 
Yeah. Uh, sometime after that, I did the same with the Book of Romans after I read a book by a theologian named N.T. Wright. And I came to realize that even though I was an evangelical and I prided myself in about knowing about the gospel, that writer was right. I didn't have the foggiest notion because mm. I, I didn't under, I'd never been taught that that phrase kingdom of God had any meaning other than how to go to heaven after you die. Yeah. Mm. So what, um, I guess, uh, the next kind of question would be what, like, what is the kingdom of God? Yeah. Well, you know, a good place to go for that, for those of us who are kind of deep into scripture, would be the Lord's Prayer, which a whole lot of people mm. memorize and have never really thought about. Yeah. So in the Lord's Prayer, we, we say, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, first of all, isn't it interesting? We don't pray, now I lay me down to sleep. If I should die, yeah. uh, you know. Uh, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It's not about going to heaven. It's mm. not may we go to your kingdom. It's may your kingdom come. And then yeah. I think what we have in that next phrase is a case of what's called Hebrew parallelism. It's very common in, in Hebrew where you want to emphasize something. So you say it twice, right? but you say it in two different ways. So may your kingdom come. In other words, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm. So this is like 180 degree shift in the direction. Instead of a direction of us going up, it's rather of God's will coming down. Yeah. And, and so I think what the kingdom of God means then is very much what Dr. King meant when he spoke of, I have a dream. Mm -hmm. It would be to say, what is God's dream for the earth? That's the kingdom of God. And what made yeah. Jesus controversial was not that he had he had a different way to go to heaven. You used to go to heaven by being Jewish. Now you go to heaven. I'm starting a new religion. Yeah. For me, <laughs> no. Um, he gave us a new understanding of what God's dream is for the earth. Hmm. It's a dream where we forgive. It's a dream of nonviolence. It's a dream where we love our neighbors ourselves. It's a dream, but which by the way includes loving ourselves and being friends mm. to ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, it's a dream where we respect the wisdom contained in the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. And it's it's a it's what's revolutionary and radical about Jesus is the way he articulates a dream. By the way, and it's also a dream that's not just for people of my religion or race or class or language. Yeah. It's a dream that includes the people that I think should be excluded. And that's pretty remarkable. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, um, as I was um, getting ready for the, to, to get to talk to you, I was looking back on, on the books that I had read by you and, and, um, and it, I saw that as I started to think more about the kingdom of God and, and read it from you and read it from others and kind of explore it more, that um, it it was a big part of what led me to rethink a lot of things. And I um, my the book that I wrote last year is called "There's a God in My Closet," and I and I just talk about learning, like my transition from seeing God as like this angry monster to seeing Him as someone who like embraces my skeletons and helps me to do it too, and and helps me to learn how to to love like sit in that darkness and to love myself and, and, yes. and, and in doing that, being able to love others well. Um, and, uh, 
And so as I explore the kingdom of God, then it's like, well, wait, if it's not about going to heaven, if it's not about appeasing some angry God, then what's actually happening on the cross? And what, wh why does God look like such a monster in different parts of scripture? And, and what the hell is eternal conscious torment about? Like, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, where would you like to start? Well, um, I think, um, I, I think I'd actually like to talk about, um, so those, those really impacted me like on a theological level and, and not that they don't have, not that those don't have practical application cause they totally do. But I thought it'd be good to talk about how that kingdom of God concept, um, really helps us in the world that we're living in. Cause it, cause it's so, it, it so speaks to it. Um, but I, I think one, one question that I've thought about, and I know that people have asked me when we talk about this is how, how do we live out this kingdom of God of, um, like you talked about nonviolence and love and forgiveness and, and justice for, for everyone, you know, justice in a sense of wholeness and, and enoughness. How do we live that out when, when we're still, we have to live in the system that we're in? Yes. Yes. Well, it sure be easy if we lived in a world where everything was perfect, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we could just eat, sleep and, uh, and have fun. Yeah. But we have work to do in, in a world like this. So, uh, and this, I think, is where Jesus' teaching becomes so powerful. It's all about love. Well, what is love? Mm. Well, love is desiring the best. Mm. Uh, and so to love my neighbor as myself would be to say, I want what's best for my neighbor, just as I would like what's best for myself. Um, mm. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you something interesting about my dad. Um, uh, something, one of the things that I always admired about my dad, he was very frugal. He used to joke, mm. you know, sort of a Scottish joke that being Scottish, we always like the bargain. <laughs> but I can't tell you how many times something like this would happen. My dad would buy something from somebody and, and he'd get a really good bargain on it. And then he'd say, you know what? I think it's worth more than that. So that maybe he agreed to buy something for $30 and he'd pay the guy $50, you know? Mm. And, and I realized that this is my dad's compassion. He yeah. wanted his, he didn't want to get a bargain at the expense of somebody else. He wanted yeah. the other person to be treated well too. Um, I grew up, you know, I'm pretty old. So I grew up, you know, at the tail end of the era of segregation. Mm. I remember uh, seeing whites only signs by drinking fountains and going into restaurants where there were white and black sections of the restaurant. You know, I, I, I was a little boy, but I have memories of that. Yeah. And I, the church that we attended um, was a racist church. I mean, I didn't realize it then. Yeah. But if, if black people showed up, there were some very polite, well-dressed elders who would recommend to them a, a black church. Mm. Uh, and they would do it very politely, but it was racism. Yeah. And whenever a person of color showed up at our church, my parents would be the first to go up to them and invite them over for dinner. Mm -hmm. And, and I just think there's something that my parents learned that that's the way we start. We start with a heart of love. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, maybe I could say the, the gateway drug in all of this, if I can use that uh, metaphor yeah. is when we try to meet needs. I think that's where we start. How do we help people? But when we start helping people, you've probably heard the saying, you can keep pulling people out of the river who are drowning, but eventually you need to say, who's throwing people in the river upstream? Mm. 
Right. And then you have to say, let's go stop those people upstream from throwing people in the river. Yeah. Uh, and you might call that advocacy or social justice or whatever you call it. It's when you try to change the conditions that keep pushing people into misery where they need our compassionate service. Now, we do it out of compassion. Yeah. And in fact, we don't even understand the problem until we get involved with compassion. But um, it seems to me that's the way of Jesus. And, uh, uh, and, and we see it with Jesus. He, he didn't just see sick people and say, uh, you'll feel better when you go to heaven. Say this mm. prayer so you can go to heaven. You'll feel better someday. You'll be miserable until then. But you'll be... He didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, he, 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 he had it within his power to heal people, according to the Gospels. I don't have that particular power, but you know what? I do have the power to uh, pay for their hospital bill. Yeah. And then once I do that a few times, I think I do have the power to start advocating for better health care for people who are poor and don't have health insurance. Yeah. You see, that's how these things fit together, it seems to me. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about that um i th I thought we could get into just a little bit because i mean it seems like how you know how can we have a conversation right now with what's going on in our country and not talk about you know the discussion about race and and the the pain that's going on and yes and um and just you know the like i guess there's not I don't know if there's a real nice way to say it because it's it's something we need to hear, but kind of the blindness of, of a lot of white people that just don't they don't want to see um, the the racist tendencies they have and and you know we've gotten this idea that well racism it's only racist racism if somebody's mean and belligerent and they call somebody the n word and that you know yes. and that that's all it is and. And so people don't want to look at what's going on inside of them and um, they get defensive and it's like, well, you know, you're, we're not saying you're a bad person. We're saying that there's, there's things that you need to open up to. Um, and so when, when we think about the kingdom of God, about, you know, how, how holistic it is, what, what do you think it has to say to us about our current discussion on, on race? Yeah. Well, you know, we've got several levels of trouble here, Ben. One of them is ignorance. Uh, yeah. Maybe I can tell you a quick story about something other than race and then come back to race. Sure. So my wife, uh, her name is Grace. Grace, up until the last few years, has been super hateful of politics. She just doesn't like politics. Mm -hmm. And when I started getting more involved in politics 20 years ago, she was like, it just made her wince. And she was like, mm -hmm. wishing I wouldn't do it. Yeah. Uh, well, some years ago, I helped lead uh, a trip of uh, religious leaders, Christian leaders to Israel, Palestine. But most of our time was spent in Palestine. It wasn't like a Holy Land tour, although we saw a lot of the sites. Mm -hmm. It was really a trip to understand the conflict between Israel and Palestine. Yeah. We stayed in the home of Palestinians. We went to the headquarters of the, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. We learned from local Jews and Palestinians about the history. We, we walked along the wall. You know, we had all these experiences. Met with settlers, met with people in refugee camps. Yeah. And about halfway through the trip, my wife, we're back in our little hotel room at this one place we were staying. She starts like almost shaking. Mm. And I said, what's going on? And she said, 
I realized when I, she said, when we were kids, we heard that Russians had propaganda and we had the news. She says, mm -hmm. now I realize I've been living in a propaganda state. How could I get to be in my fifties? And I've never heard, I've never knew about any of this, right? Mm. And so part of the thing we have to realize is that a whole lot of us, we've been, all of us have been raised in a propaganda state where yeah. a whole lot of truth hasn't been told. Yeah. Let me just say, if, if I grew up to think of Christopher Columbus as a hero, yeah. can I tell you, Christopher Columbus was a sick man uh, and he was a cruel and vicious man. Mm. And there's parts of his story, theological parts of his story. He had these messianic understandings of himself. And he, he, he not only committed rape, he used rape of small girls in Hispaniola, Dominican Republic and Haiti, the native peoples. He, he gave away girls um, mm. to his top generals as sort of a company perk. I mean, this was not a well man, right? Yeah. How do we get to think of him as a hero? Mm. How many times did I stand in front of a, a Christopher Columbus statue and think one of our great heroes, right? Right. I, uh, uh, and, and then you realize that's just one tiny piece of a puzzle. Uh, you find yeah. out that, that, that there's so much that's been hidden from us. And so we first have to realize that a big part of this problem is, is old-fashioned ignorance. Yeah. And, and the only way out of that is to gently, not to tell people, you're so ignorant, you're so stupid, but to find ways to introduce people to history they didn't know about. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that involves some uh, teaching ability on our part. You know, it's yeah. very different to say to somebody, I want you to hear this, sit down and listen and say, hey, if you're ever interested, I just read the most fascinating and disturbing book. Um, mm. And, you know, you don't tell them anymore. And then they say, well, what is it? Uh, and, and you, you know, you get people into conversation that way. Yeah. Um, so ignorance is one problem. And then we have uh, bias and bias is when we don't want to have our ignorance challenged <laughs> when we're mm. when we're emotionally attached to our ignorance. Yeah. Uh, and then beyond that, there's fear. Fear that if I were to listen to that history and challenge my ignorance, mm. overcome my bias, I would be rejected by people in my little social group. Yeah. And all of these are factors that I think stand in the way of the kind of change that we need, but it has to happen. And I've been through those changes and I continue to go through those changes. And it wasn't easy and it's often painful, it's still painful, but my gosh, I would never go back. And so yeah. I think that, I does that make sense? That kind of attitude yeah. makes sense? Yeah, totally. No, I think you're right. Cause it's, it's, so, it's so tempting. I mean, no matter what perspective you're coming from, it's so tempting to, to just think why don't you think like me you know <laughs> <laughs> yes yes that's right yeah. and and i think it's important for us to realize you know uh if it were that simple we'd all be on the right track you know yeah um, so uh, and my gosh this is where i i recall what jesus said about when you uh take the splinter out of your when you take the plank out of your own eye you're better able to help take the splinter out of somebody else's eye yeah hmm Hmm. Well, as I, as I mentioned before, a big part of um, your writing that really impacted me was, was talking about postmodernism and, um, and just how our society was, the way we 
see things was changing and it, and it was more that it was more than just a generation gap it was the just our world was changing so much how, how can you not end up seeing things differently and and one of those one of the elements of postmodernism was um, this increasing um, distrust of institutions and authority and um, and, and a lot of that comes from any cultural shift, but but definitely with postmodernism. And it's it's really interesting because I I think another element of it was um, there was less. And, and you can kind of correct my verbiage because I may not be saying this um, completely correct, but there was less of this um, seeing things as like completely black and white, and more of yeah. like more of like we can start to see you know, how things kind of mesh together a little bit in the shades of gray. But it's it's really interesting, though, because when when the postmodern shift was happening, when it was starting to happen, a lot of, you know, people on the conservative side were, were really concerned about, you know, well, they're going to go off the deep end. And now now it's really funny because you you look you look at the conservative kind of right wing side and they're kind of falling into that, too of like, oh gosh. like we can be, you know, we can be loving and bigoted at the same time, or we can, you know, I mean, <laughs> what, you know, who knew that we would have to t say that Nazis are bad again, you know, and like, <laughs> yes, I mean, just this crazy stuff. I mean, I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that, that's been something that I've been thinking about. Yes, uh, I actually been thinking about that too. So let me first uh, offer a little bit of background and then get to the issue you're talking about. Okay. Um, one of my, you know, as I started writing about this, um, a, a very respected mentor of mine said to me, Brian, when you're talking about postmodern, you need to remember postmodern is postcolonial, mm -hmm. and postmodern and postcolonial are post-Holocaust, mm -hmm. and when you take the, the process of colonization, where white people colonized the world, um, yes, po and, and when you take the Holocaust, where white, educated Christian Germans, some Catholic, some Lutheran, and other Protestant, when these people committed genocide, tried to commit genocide against Jews, and against gypsies, and against homosexual people, and right. against uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, they have a whole bunch of targets, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, what happens that so world war ii ends in 1945 and and the entire civilized world the intellects of the world say how could germany the most enlightened educated advanced culture in the world back then they didn't think it was america america was a bunch of yokels and hillbillies right <laughs> yeah um, but germany was at the top, top of the, the lead of the pack and they said how could germans do this something is wrong with us and then and then they started saying, and look at what we did, not just to the Jews, look at what we did to the, the Native Americans, look at what we did to mm. the Africans, look at what we did in Indonesia. And we started seeing, oh my gosh, we didn't question ourselves. We thought we were right about everything. We mm. thought we were civilized and we've killed tens of millions. Um, mm. Well, here's the, the deal. That is at the heart of the postmodern moment. And what happens at that moment is you become self-critical. You, you say, I better figure out, I better question myself or I might commit genocide again, or we better question mm -hmm. ourselves or we might enslave people again. 
and, and that is a profoundly moral process. Yeah. Um, now, coming back to your point, what was so ironic is when, when I was writing about these things 10, uh, no, 20 years ago now, yeah. when I was writing about these things, um, conservative evangelicals said, oh, you're postmodern. You don't care about the truth. Well, the, no, actually, I did care about the truth. <laughs> it was my love for the truth that made me say, if you claim you have all the truth, you're the kind of person who might commit genocide tomorrow. <laughs> mm. If you claim you're so right, you're the kind of person who's going to uh, inflict terrible harm on other people because you're incapable of criticizing yourself. Yeah. Well, here's the irony. Those same people now are lined up behind a president who has, I don't know what, how many lies we're up to, 20,000, I, I bet we're somewhere around 20,000 mm. documented lies someone who has never admitted he's wrong. I yeah. mean, it's yep. even when he was asked, have you ever asked for forgiveness? It was like, why would I do that? You know, I yeah. haven't done anything wrong. So, mm. so the irony of this is that the very people who said, you don't care about the truth. What they've shown is they actually don't care about the truth. They only care about their truth, meaning their set of assumptions and biases and ideas uh, that they share that give them a good feeling and power and privilege and advantage. So yeah, uh, yeah uh, all kinds of ironies I'm feeling right about now. Yeah. 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 Especially like you said, you, I, I know you took a lot of heat for a lot of that stuff in the past. Um, yeah. It's, it's so, it's so crazy with, with our president. Cause I, I was telling, I was telling somebody today, like, like Trump, you know, Trump on a normal day, like just, when he was a celebrity, I just found him kind of irritating. But as a as a president, it's like if, if he would just come out and say, like, you know what, I've said some really irresponsible things. It's I can see how it's contributing to this state and I want to do better. Let's let's try to do better. Like I'm yay Trump. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. it's like yeah. we're you know, it's not like I'm I'm wanna crucify him or something. It's like he's leading the country and I would love to see him you know, repent. And just as I need to repent, I would love to see him repent from some of the ways that he has, you know, stirred up so much stuff in our country. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in an interesting way, uh, what I think what has happened is this modern postmodern conflict and, and tension has continued kind of like labor pains. And for right now, uh, a lot of people have decided we want to stick with modern. We want white mm. people to be in charge. We want America to boss everybody else around. We yeah. want, uh, you know, all of those things that are part of our history. It was all hidden in that word, make America great again. Mm. Let's go back to the yeah. way things were. And, and that right now, uh, a lot of people supported that. Now, you know, not a majority of voters, but enough to keep control of our government. And, uh, yeah, so it's mm. it's uh, all of this is in play, and and in the next few months, it's going to be in play uh, more and more and more. Yeah, and oh, and this comes back to the issue of uh, Floyd George, and uh, and you know all the way back to Trayvon Martin, and of course, the fact that a few of these things have been captured on video reminds us or, or opens us up to how many thousands, tens of thousands of atrocities happened and there was nobody with a camera. Yeah, exactly. Um, and 
Yeah. And then you realize, okay, something is really, really wrong here. If I can mm. just tell a quick story in this regard. Sure. So a few years ago, I live in Southwest Florida and I attend a, a little church uh, in my community. And there was a homeless guy uh, sleeping on our church property. And mm. the youth pastor uh, uh, saw him and said, you know, should I call the police? And we said, no, you should get to know him and see if we can help him. So then I got involved and we got to know the guy. Sweet guy, been through terrible hardships. Uh, African-American guy. We helped him get a job. We helped him get a home. He was doing fantastic. Um, one night, the youth pastor at our church took him out to a restaurant and they were in the restaurant having something to eat. And he said, oh, I left my iPhone, uh, my phone in the car. Mm. He went out to get his phone. He never came back. And like, what happened? What happened? Mm. The police had picked him up. They had assumed that a black guy in this neighborhood is stealing from cars. Yeah. It didn't matter what he said. They wouldn't let him come in. Mm. And for three months, he stayed in jail. Oh, my gosh. And, and you know, we tried to get lawyers. We tried to do everything we could to help him. And we, we realized this is the sort of thing that happens. And, you know, I, I would bet that even today, uh, a, a majority of white people who attend that church uh, still would not believe that story. Even if I yeah. told it, you know, uh, to them one to one, because yeah. they've they've been brought up in a different world, they just can't imagine that happening. Mm. Um, or if they did admit that it happened, because it's pretty hard to deny, they would say, "Oh, it's just one uh, uh, innocent mistake." <laughs> but that's where yeah. now we're having the chance to come to terms with, with a deeper reality, and then face the challenge: How do we start to turn things around? Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great point. I, I read that the other day, actually, you know, somebody just saying like, you know, this stuff has been happening forever. We just didn't believe the black people until we saw it. Yes. Hmm. Well, I think um, just to, so I can respect your time, well, um, I have one more question I want to kind of ask. And um, just to talk about, you know, going back to the kingdom of God and and looking at how, you know, we we continue to have difficulty in, um, relating well to people of other faiths and and there continues to be you know just just difficulty in accepting them and 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 um, not having you know ill thoughts um, towards them and, and and understanding them you know listening to their stories and um, so and I, I know you've written a lot about this and experienced a lot about this what what would you say about just what the kingdom of God has to help us and with, with our interfaith dialogue. Yes. Well, um, uh, let me just uh, recount a story that's told in at least two of the Gospels. It might be three, but um, it's a story in Matthew's Gospel of Jesus' encounter with a woman who's called a Canaanite woman. Uh, and in Luke's Gospel, she's called a Sidonian or Syrophoenician woman. Mm -hmm. And um, and she's a person of another race and another religion who comes to Jesus asking for help. And it's a very disturbing story because Jesus basically calls her a dog and says, well, yeah. what are you doing asking me for help? And then she, through her persistence, uh, he says, woman, you have great faith, you know, be it done to you according to your faith, something like that. And I think what the gospel writers give us in that is really quite precious. Jesus models for us learning 
Mm, yeah. <laughs> he, he, he models for us changing his mind. Mm. He models for us letting someone show him something he didn't see before. Mm. And, you know, people's Christology and their theology will have all kinds of struggles to grapple with that. But grapple with the text. It's there, you know, in, yeah. in at least the Gospels. And I think what we have to do is, first of all, say, if the Gospel is not about God chooses some people and, and, and predestines others for hell, God loves some and hates others, if we actually believe that God so loved the world, then I think we are in a very different starting point. And then we say, well, if my job is to love my neighbor as myself, if I were Muslim, how would I want somebody to love me? You might say, well, I would want them to tell them about Jesus. Okay, but is that the first thing you would want to do? Mm. You know, yeah. Um, as a Christian, do you want a Muslim to come up and try to convert you? Or would you rather them see you as a human being and listen mm. to you and learn about your story and be yeah. willing to share their gifts, but also receive yours? And that to me, is the starting point for everything we have to do. And all, the only other thing I can say, I wrote about this in a book called Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Mom Across the Road, which people might find helpful. Which is a great uh, title, helpful. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, but uh, so much happens when you actually have a Muslim friend, a yeah. Buddhist friend, a Hindu friend, uh, someone who you, you see the beauty in them. And all I can say is uh, I, I would encourage everybody to pray for friends of different faiths mm. and, and pray for what God can teach you through people of other faiths, not just for what you can do them, be a blessing to them, but be open to the blessing you can receive from that friendship. Mm. Brian, I just want to, just want to thank you, not, not just for your time today, just taking your time with me, but also just, um, I know that, you know, it took a lot of courage to write what you've been writing about these last 20 or so years and, and um, I know you've taken a lot of flack, and but you've been willing to to speak what's on your heart, speak what you feel is right, and I just want to thank you for that. Well, it means a lot to me to receive that encouragement. It means a lot to me to know that you know my books were helpful, have been helpful to you. And can I say it means a lot to me to know that you have this podcast and you're using your platform to try to be of help to other people. So uh, in the bigger scheme of things, we're all in this together. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm honored to be part of uh, some small part of your work. So keep up the good work. Mm. Thanks, Brian. Well, that was really cool. I'm so glad I got to talk to Brian. Um, just, I, I can't overestimate the impact his writings have had on me. And I'm just so glad to get to talk to him and, and, and get to just um, pick his brain a little bit about stuff that I've been thinking about concerning that as writing. It was really cool to be able to do that. Um, thank you, Brian, so much for your time. Um, I didn't get to mention his website. I, kind of, I wanted to respect his time, and, and he had to get to another meeting. Um, but please check out his website, brianmclaren.net. Um, you can check out his work, what he's working on, um, all his books, um, anything that he's doing there. And there's just so many good books, so many good books to choose from. Um, as I, I mentioned in the beginning of the interview, some, some of the ones that really impacted me the most, but, um, check him out, brianmclaren.net, just so much good stuff that he's been able to talk about and, and share about and, and, um, really love that he's, he's been willing to, um, you know, look at things differently and, and explore things that are sometimes uncomfortable and, and we all have to do that at times. Um, we have to do that most of the time, honestly. And, um, it's something that I've been really um, trying to do more and, um, 
And obviously with what's going on in our country, we, we all need to do that a little bit more just to, to kind of come to solutions, come to awareness, listen to people's stories. Um, so I just really appreciate what he has to offer. Well, thanks again, everybody, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did. And as always, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You are in him and he is in you. Take care. Take care.